Today's lecture is The Means of the Christian Life. Now, Paul Lindsay. Father, we thank you for the liberty of having the Spirit within us, and we pray that he might just teach us in this hour the wonder and the glory of what is now available to each Christian. May we learn that all that God has is available to those who are available to all that God has. In Christ's name, amen. All right, yesterday we talked about the main purpose of the law. When you get right down to it, the sum of everything I said yesterday is that the law was given to drive us to utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit. The law was given to drive us to a, a sense of complete helplessness, a sense of knowing that we're not sufficient in ourselves to live the Christian life, to turn from self-sufficiency and any idea that we can help God live the Christian life and just have an attitude of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. This diagram that we started yesterday which rests on a finished salvation, that is the fact that we're secure in Christ, nothing can change that. And then we start erecting upon that one foundation the, the Christian life. We saw that the source of the Christian life is the Holy Spirit. He's the source of all valid experience in the Christian life. Anything that is not from the Holy Spirit is not valid. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, where we have the judgment seat of Christ, where our believers will be uh, evaluated when we go to meet Christ face to face, it talks about having as representation of your works in this life either wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. The wood hand stubble represents all that you produced in the flesh. Those things you thought were good, but you did them yourself, as well as the bad things. And the gold, silver, and precious stones represents the things that you just depended on the Holy Spirit to do in your life, and those will be rewarded. Now, the means of the Christian life. A key verse on this. It's Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And we said the law drives us to see that we must, we must depend upon the Holy Spirit. The law actually drives us to see the principle that is given succinctly in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Page 340. Here's one of those verses that sort of pulls together in one little sentence what a great deal of the New Testament says. In other words, this, this summarizes a teaching that is all through the New Testament. Colossians 2.6 As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now the word received is in the aorist tense, which means at a point of time once and for all. 
You receive Christ at a point of time once for all by an act of your will. As you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so keep walking in him. Walk is in the present tense, which means a moment-by-moment continuance. So keep walking in him. Now, we find that the means here of living the Christian life is exactly the same means by which we were saved. Now, how were we saved? Somebody got it up here. Let's hear it from the back gallery back there. Huh? By grace through faith. That's right. Not by faith. We weren't saved by faith. We were saved by grace through faith. You see, grace is the reason. Faith is simply the agency through which we received a total gift. And so we were saved at a point of time by seeing God's grace, which means that God, God does all the work and gives the gift, and we simply accepted it by faith. It's receiving what God has. It's seeing I can't do it, and it's receiving God. It is not working. It is receiving the work of another. So by grace through faith, I came to know Christ. Now, you see why it took so long on salvation. We've taken three weeks on salvation, and we're only taking one week on living the Christian life. Now, that's the emphasis of the Scripture. And let me give you a little key that you may not fully understand now, but don't you forget it. Listen, the words of the Scripture are inspired by the Spirit of God. In other words, the very words in the original were inspired by the Spirit of God. But here's something I've learned recently in a fresh new way. Not only were the words of the Scripture inspired, but the emphasis of the Scripture is inspired. In other words, that which God gives great emphasis to is what we should give great emphasis to. And God gives the greatest emphasis to the work of Christ on the cross and salvation. Now, once you get straight on that, then you'll understand how on a moment-by-moment -moment basis to live the Christian life. But if you're wrong on salvation, if you still think that you can help God keep you saved, then you are not ready to really live the Christian life. Because your view of salvation completely influences your view of how you live the Christian life. If you think you can help God live the Christian, or if you could think you could help God keep you saved, which in the final analysis is to say that salvation is by works, then you'll have the idea that you can help God do something to give you victory in the Christian life. But just as you were brought into salvation, by that same means you live the Christian life. The only difference is salvation was obtained by an act of faith. Victory is obtained by a moment-by-moment -moment attitude of faith. An attitude which sees that God has done all that's necessary to give me victory over the old sin nature, over the temptations that come to mind, over Satan, 
and over all of the obstacles that are in my life, over all of the inhibitions and so forth that I have in my life. The Holy Spirit is adequate for all of these things on the basis of grace. That is, he will work as we just simply depend upon him. So the means then is by grace through faith. All right, so the source is the Holy Spirit. The way we release the Holy Spirit to work in our life is by realizing its grace. God provided him through faith, which is simply a moment-by-moment -moment attitude of dependence upon the Spirit. Now, the problem here is that some people make faith a work. The way you make faith a work is to get the idea that victory in the Christian life comes by how much faith you have. It's not how much faith you have, it's whatever faith you've got that gives victory. God doesn't work in your life on the basis of your great faith, but he works in your life on the basis of whatever faith you have right now. Otherwise, there could be no victory. Faith, or God doesn't work on the basis of what you ain't got, to put it in the slang way. God works on the basis of what you have. And faith is powerful because of the one in whom you place it. Faith is not powerful. It's Christ working in you through the Holy Spirit that's po uh, powerful. So, it's not how much faith you have. It's simply having an attitude of seeing Christ is completely adequate because of residing in you through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is his special ambassador to you. And the Holy Spirit having the same life as Christ, since the Trinity have one essence, they have the same life. The three persons have the same life. To have the Holy Spirit in you is the same as having Christ in you. And so Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, works in you personally by the Holy Spirit. So, he is the source. The Holy Spirit is the one who's come to live in you to execute the will of Christ and to produce it in you. In fact, the Christian life may be defined as this in a short sentence. The Christian life is the life of Christ produced in the depending Christian. The life of Christ produced in the depending Christian. And I mean by depending, the attitude of faith. It's not my life. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. It's not my life, it's Christ's. And it's produced in me by the Holy Spirit. Now where do the hang-ups usually come? Well, 
We learned yesterday that there, there are basically two ways of approaching God, whether it's for salvation at a moment of time or it's victory in the Christian life moment by moment. The first way is by law through works. It is depends in total or in part upon human effort. You're coming by human effort, you're under law. All right, the second way of approach is by grace, which means you can't do nothing. God's done it all through faith. which is an attitude of dependence. You realize that your life as a Christian is a derived life. A derived life. It's not from you. It's from Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, the enemy of faith is usually this. I'll just give you an illustration by what happened this last year. I have a friend who has a doctorate of theology, went to the same seminary I did. And he's a, he's a tremendous student of the Word and a, and a tremendous teacher, has a real gift. But one of the members of our staff who had really gotten the picture on the purpose of the law, that it was never given to produce righteousness, but to drive us to despair and then depend on the Spirit by faith. He uh, spoke in the man's church, and he really got across the idea that if we're under a principle of law, that is, objective standards, and we're trying to keep them, we feel that there, we've got to have all of these standards stuck up there and you know, so that the Holy Spirit will know what to do if he didn't. He got that point across that we are not under the principle of law, that we are to walk by faith in dependence upon the Spirit. Well, this so upset my friend that he called me and he said, look, you've got to come over here. We've got problems. So I went over and I dearly love this friend. And uh, he uh, began to tell me, look, boy, this is heresy. Now, you're, I know we're not under the law of Moses. We learned that at Dallas. And I know we're not under the Sermon on the Mount. But we're under the law of Christ. And I said, well, that's uh, true. What do you mean by the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is all of the commandments of the epistles. So I said, well, now, wait a minute. I knew that if he saw the implication of that, that he wouldn't believe it. But you see, for some reason, there's a veil over our hearts that we can't really see. We're afraid that we can't trust the Holy Spirit to do what God says he'll do. And so I just began to ask him a question. I said, now, wait a minute. We're not under the law of Moses. Why? We said, because uh, the law of Moses... Uh, uh, has been done away. Yeah, but why? So we had a little lesson in Romans 6, 14, and Romans 7, verses uh, 8 through 11. 
in Romans 5.20, where I pointed out to him the reason we're not under the law of Moses is because the law of Moses causes me to sin. The law of Moses actually causes my old nature to rebel, and it causes me to be a slave to sin. Romans 6.14 says if we're under law as a principle, that we will have sin reign over us. That's why Romans 7 says we are removed from the jurisdiction of the law that we might live in the newness of the Spirit. So he said, okay, I agree with that. And I said, now, the Sermon on the Mount is simply an amplification of the the, uh, law of Moses. Isn't that correct? He agreed with that. I said, now, would uh, would you say that the commandments or the commands that are in the epistles represent a higher standard of life than the standard of life in the Law of Moses and the Sermon on the Mount. He thought for a minute and he said, yes, they do. I said, well, then what you're saying is that I could not keep this lesser law because the lesser law would drive me to sin. But you're saying that I can keep this higher law? You get the point? If I couldn't keep the lower law, by what stretch of imagination can I keep a higher law? That's the point. If I can't keep the least, how can I keep the most? You cannot put yourself under the principle of law. Now, there is a way that those things are affected in us by the Spirit, but not by setting them up as commandments which I must keep and then trying to keep them. God has a better way. The results of walking in dependence upon the Spirit, according to Romans 8, 4, is... The righteousness of the law will be produced in us, not by us. The righteousness of the law will appear. I've had a lot of people come to me during this course and say, well, Hal, now you're talking about, boy, not being under a principle of law at all. Wait a minute, boy. We've got to have some rules. Uh, and by the way, Hal, I've seen some people sitting down at the pool when others are witnessing. And they say, I don't have to witness because I am not under the law and God accepts me whether I go witnessing or not. What are you going to do about that? You know what I'm going to do about that? (laughs) I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to show that person that that's not the right way. But you see, it takes time, and something we've got to learn is that the Holy Spirit is more interested in what he's doing to us than what he's doing through us. And if by a principle of law, which is by threat, we force people against their will to go witnessing, 
then we're not doing them any good. Now there's a difference between our emotional feelings and our desires. The Holy Spirit produces the desires deep down in our heart, but we may not feel like doing them. Those are times when we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit to cause us to do what he causes us to will. Because he does both, Philippians 2.13. He causes us both to will and to do. It says God is at work within you both to will and to do. He energizes. The word uh, at work means energize. He's, at, he's energizing us both to will and to do his good pleasure. But this doesn't mean that a, a new baby Christian is going to suddenly be transformed into maturity overnight. A person walking in the Spirit is not one who's instantly mature, but he is one that the Holy Spirit's taking what he is at that moment and making the most of it. And we have to learn to recognize that there is a process of growth. Now, when... Uh, when my twin little girls were uh, about six months old, they had a peculiar uh, delight when they would take their food and throw it at each other. Well, I didn't spank them right away. I tried to teach them differently. Now they're five. If they do it now, they'll get a spanking. But they're, they know better now. They've grown They've had a chance to understand. And the Christian is the same way. You know, when someone uh, is a new Christian or they're just entering into new experiences, what other Christians do is put them under law. You know how they do it? Uh, listen, Brother Jones, uh, spiritual Christians do thus and so. And spiritual Christians don't do thus and so. And so usually someone who's been a Christian about five years tries to immediately get the new Christian to live according to the same standard he's living, and he forgets it took the Holy Spirit five years to kick it into him. We have to learn to trust the Holy Spirit to do in others what he has done in us and is doing in us. And if this doesn't work, you know what you know what I'll do? I'm not going to put them under law. I'll ask God, what's happening, man? This is what you said, and I believe it. And it's got to work. The alternative to walking in the Spirit is not putting people back under law, but it's clarifying what it means to walk in the Spirit. And it will work. Now, what are the results of the Christian life? This is where we really get to the nitty-gritty, where we get to the important thing. Now, what the epistles tell us, actually, and, and actually the whole Bible tells us, is what we can expect the Holy Spirit to produce in me when I am walking with an attitude of dependence. And this is uh, the peculiar function of the Scripture. You know, we don't throw away the Bible. The Bible gives us the pattern of what Christ is like. 
And then the Holy Spirit transforms us inside into that pattern. But we don't set up objective laws. We simply see this pattern as what we can expect the Holy Spirit to do. So this faith is a faith which expects. And we begin to regard the commands of the Scripture not as commands, but as promises. In other words, the Scripture tells me that everything in my life must be produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, when I see a command... I'm not to look at that as something, boy, I've got to get with it and start keeping it. I am to see that as the pattern of the life of Christ to on the one, have an ad one hand realize I can't do it and God doesn't expect me to do it. On the other hand, to expect the Holy Spirit to produce that in my life. Now, this is the faith that expects. And one of the first things that this produces... is an attitude of agreement with God. An attitude of agreement with God about known sin. Yes, sir. I don't understand what you're saying. No, not if you understand it. Now, let's since you've brought that up, you've brought out uh, uh about confessing sin. That's what we're bringing up right now. What does that mean? And what is sin as far as the Christian is concerned? Now, that's the key. What is sin? And what does it do to God and what does it do to the Christian? All right. The first result of, being, of walking in the Spirit by dependence will produce an attitude, a desire to want to follow God it produces agreement, and it produces obedience. Now, obedience is not the means of living the Christian life, but it is the results. As you walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, He produces obedience to what you know about the Scripture. You simply expect the Holy Spirit to produce it in you. Now, what is considered sin when you're, you're in the Christian life and as far as God is concerned, you're forgiven all sin, past, present, and future? Well, let me show you. Here is the point of time when you come to know Christ, this cross. At that instant... The Holy Spirit puts you in Christ. 
you're so identified with Christ by God's judicial pronouncement and by actual union with Christ that at that moment what is true of Christ becomes true of you. That's your position before God. This is an eternal fact. It is not affected by anything else that happens in time. At that instant, among many things, you are uh, justified. That is, you're declared as righteous as God is righteous. You are perfected in Christ. That is, God sees you as perfected and without blame before him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. You're perfected in Christ. You are accepted unconditionally in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, 6. You're given the very life of Christ, which is eternal life in your spirit. Now, these are just a few of the things that happen the instant that you believe in Christ on the basis of being in Christ. Now, these are your legal rights. They're, they're your eternal legal rights. God makes them true immediately when you believe. These are facts which relate to eternity. But these facts bring bear, uh, directly bear upon what your experience will be as a Christian. Now, there are two experiences that a Christian can have in the Christian life. At first, when he receives Christ, he enters into a situation where Christ, through the Holy Spirit, takes control. And we'll just put the Holy Spirit here for the sake of uh, illustrating. It's the Holy Spirit who actually who takes control for Christ. The Holy Spirit takes control of your life and the flesh is controlled by the Spirit. The, the flesh is suppressed by the Holy Spirit as long as you're walking in the Spirit, which means to have a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, this is true until you stop depending upon the Holy Spirit. Unbelief is the key to all Christian sin. Unbelief is the greatest sin that a Christian can commit. Now, the reason it's the greatest is because you wouldn't sin if you always depended on the Holy Spirit. He would keep you from it. So, in order to sin, you've got to sin twice. Here you are being tempted by the, by the flesh, which is the old nature, and temptation is not a sin. Some people think that victory is absence of temptation. That's where the great error begins. The, the, the one who is depending on the Holy Spirit will be tempted. But he will not yield to it as long as he's not trying to fight that temptation himself, but he's recognizing he can't and he has a, a dependent attitude upon the Holy Spirit whom the Bible says will keep control of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 gives this great promise. Just a moment. Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, keep walking in the Spirit. That means to keep having an attitude of dependence upon the Spirit. 
and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now, it doesn't say you won't have lust. It says you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh, and that's very important to see. Now, you are not sinning as long as when you're tempted you're just... You have your eyes of dependency upon the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit, and you're just depending upon Him, and He deals with this. And the Holy Spirit will do this miraculous work. It's a moment-by-moment -moment miracle to be delivered from the flesh. And that's what He does. That's what God promised. And I just tell God, I'm stepping out, and I've got you on the spot, God. You promised this, and I believe it. And He always keeps His word. Now, when I stop depending upon the Holy Spirit, now the way I can do that is by saying, oh boy, I've been tempted with this. This is such an area of weakness. And so you begin to look at the temptation. And then you start feeling guilty because of being tempted. And then you start sort of apologizing to God because your spiritual slip is showing. And you begin this, this dialogue with God, or, or this monologue with God, uh, you're saying, oh God, if you'll just give me a little time, I won't have any more of these temptations. And God is patting his foot and saying, when will you ever learn? Because he said that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and the two are opposed to each other so that you cannot do what you desire to do. Galatians 5.17 but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, if you're led by the Spirit, you won't fall to those temptations. But you know, it usually defeat usually starts with good intentions. We see these temptations, and we, we begin to try to suppress them ourselves. Instead of committing them by faith to the Holy Spirit and just believing that He will take care of them. But you know, the Christian life is a lot more than what you don't do. It's what you do do. The Christian life involves the, uh, not doing certain things and doing certain other things. It also involves the progressive transformation of what you are. And so I'm just talking about one aspect of what the Holy Spirit does, one result. But when we stop depending upon the Holy Spirit, either by just deliberately turning to the temptation and giving in to it, or by turning to the temptation and trying to cope with it ourselves, then that's unbelief, and the flesh takes the throne, and the Holy Spirit's still in the life, but Ephesians 4.30 says he's grieved. Or as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse uh, about 17 says, that we quench the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Holy Spirit has to do usually with uh, not trusting the Spirit to do things He's urging us to do. Grieving the Spirit is deliberately turning from the Holy Spirit to a temptation, turning from dependence upon Him and doing what we're tempted to do. Now, how do we get back? Well, first of all, walking in the flesh is caused by Christian sin. Now, Christian sin is this. And by the way, I want to make definitely sure you understand. If you're walking in the flesh, you're still in Christ. So are you lost? 
No, you can't be, because you're still in Christ. That's still every bit as true of you as if you were walking in the Spirit. This is what's really true of you. This is a reflection of what's true of you by faith. Now, here's the guy who's got a sort of a smog cloud between himself and what he is, the smog of unbelief. So the guy who's walking the flesh doesn't realize what he really is. Now, how do you get back? Simply by turning from unbelief to belief. The reason you do that is because you recognize what you're doing is sin. And so in the process of turning from unbelief to belief, you agree with God that what you're doing is sin. Now, how, how can I agree with God that what I'm doing is sin and not get under a cloud of guilt? By realizing that in Christ I've already been forgiven past, present, and future. Realizing that in Christ, which is my the facts that are most real about me as far as God is concerned, I've already been accepted. I'm holy and without blame before him in love. So I don't have to go through some self-imposed penance. I don't have to plead with God to forgive me. He's already forgiven me. I'm just accepting what's already true. That's why I can turn instantly. How fast does it take, or how long does it take you to change your mind? Flash of a second. It doesn't have to be verbalized either. You just change from you're going one way by depending on the flesh or you're going the other way by depending on the Holy Spirit. And this is the critical part of the Christian life. Now, as I depend upon the Holy Spirit, I will progress in maturity. Maturity is like this. Let's say that here is the baseline of salvation. All right, maturity is like a progress progress of going up steps, steps toward maturity. Now, no one ever gets in this life absolutely mature, because to be absolutely mature would be to be conformed completely to the image of Christ. Now, that will be true when you get your resurrection body. We will be just like him, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. But you start off in spiritual babyhood, and as you begin to grow, you grow by simply depending upon the Holy Spirit. Every moment you log, depending upon the Spirit, is a time when the Holy Spirit is working in you. He works in you even when you're walking in the flesh, but not to the same degree. Now, as you are... Walking in the Spirit, he begins to develop you in maturity. Now, here are some factors of maturity. You begin to grow in faith. That is, you begin to see how faithful God is, and you respond to that. You just simply depend upon him. That's what we call growing in faith. The Holy Spirit causes you to see how dependable Christ is, and then causes you to depend on him. All right, you grow in knowledge. Maturity has to do Second with your Peter understanding of the scriptures, but the knowledge of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Satan didn't like to him be glorified. We're to keep growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does this happen? First Peter chapter two, verse three. Correction, verse two. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. 
It's the Holy jo- Holy Spirit's job to continue to bring us to understand the Scriptures and to cause us to see how they apply to our lives. One of the great parts of the maturing process is to be given real spiritual knowledge of the Scripture. Now, there is a knowledge that you might call a ministration of death where people learn just to duel with each other about doctrine. But I'm talking about the Spirit-taught knowledge, which as a man is depending upon the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit simply teaches him the things that are really relevant to living for Christ. One of the most important parts of this knowledge which the Holy Spirit gives the person and really makes him mature is to show him how much Christ loves him. Now this is done through what Christ did at the cross. The Holy Spirit illuminates us to the logic of the cross where we see the kind of love that it took to provide forgiveness at the cross and also he shows us how this love is now set free to be expressed unconditionally to us. One of the greatest things, as I've shared before, the Lord taught me this last year was the fact that love is directly related to how much I realize Christ really loves me. The more I know that Christ loves me, the more I'll trust him. The third aspect of maturity is wisdom. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 says this, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Wisdom is the application of what you know to your experience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, He that is spiritual has the mind of Christ. Now this means that he has Christ's attitude toward his daily circumstances and his particular events. Because the Holy Spirit takes what I know and he shows how it applies to the various particulars of my daily life. The fourth aspect of maturity is, pardon the expression, obedience. Now, obedience is not the cause of being controlled and filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's definitely the result. As I allow the Holy Spirit to control my life and walk in dependence upon Him, the definite result will be an obedience to what I know about God's Word. In other words, it's living up to the light I have. It's walking according to the light that I have. And this is all that God holds me responsible for as I simply depend upon the Holy Spirit to cause me to obey the things that I know, then he will produce this obedience. And this is what we might call the expectance aspect of faith. We expect the Holy Spirit to bring about and fulfill in us what we know about God's truth. Another aspect of maturity is production. The more I mature the more productive I'll be. Now, a baby in Christ can lead people to Christ. In fact, many babies lead uh, more people to Christ than a mature person, or at least one who thinks he's mature. But as a person begins to really grow in Christ, he not only can lead many to Christ, but he has these other wonderful facets of maturity. 
And too often, uh, if a person has production in the sense of leading many people to Christ, it's thought that the person must be mature. And this is just not so. Some of the most immature people I know have led many to Christ. The two are not synonymous. But an immature Christian who is walking according to the Spirit can be fruitful in leading people to Christ, and he can expect the Holy Spirit to work through him with power. As he grows, he will have these other wonderful aspects of more faith, more knowledge and understanding of God's Word, more understanding of how these things apply to his life. He will be obedient on a broader scale because he knows more. The point is that we don't get more of the Holy Spirit. He comes in all of his fullness and all of his person into us the moment we accept Christ. But the Holy Spirit gets more of us as we mature. And there's more to work with in us as he develops our personality. Now these make up the things that are what we would call maturity. One important thing that must be realized here is that Let's say a person reaches the level of the scale here of being a spiritual adolescence, maturity-wise. Now, a spiritual adolescent, in the course of a day's time, will have periods when he doesn't trust God, he doesn't depend upon the Holy Spirit, so therefore, he is at that moment walking according to the flesh. He doesn't immediately lose his maturity. He doesn't immediately lose his knowledge of the word. He doesn't lose his wisdom of how it's to be applied to life or his ability to obey the light he has. He doesn't lose the productivity and all the things that have been developed into him. But if he continues to walk according to the flesh, then these things will begin to be lost, as is the case in Hebrews chapter 5. Here we have people who probably had been Christians for about 20 years or so, and yet the writer says concerning Christ, he's talking about the high priesthood of Christ, which is a deep truth of the Christian faith. He says concerning him we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Or in other words, you've become ignorant. You've been become unable to take in the deeper truths. Then he goes on to say in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Jesus warned about this when he said, Unto whom much is given, much is required. And he told those who heard the word of God, Take heed how you hear. For he said that unless we use what we're taught, then we'll lose it. Unless we apply the things by faith, depending on the Holy Spirit, to our lives and put them into action, then we lose even the things that we think we have. Now, these are the most important factors of maturity. There are more that I could develop, but we don't have time for the day. But remember, it's as we walk moment by moment in dependence upon the Holy Spirit that we grow and we realize that walking in the spirit produces this growth and it's all of grace and not of us grace means it's all a gift God provides it in total and we simply appropriate it by faith so that we can say that the Christian life is by grace through faith and 
that not of myself is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will take these truths and bring a greater illumination to each one, that we might walk in a way which is pleasing. And Father, we pray that each one of us might daily be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, which is real maturity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today's lecture is Walking in the Spirit. Now, how Lindsay. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be taught of your Spirit. Pray that we might understand this important subject of how to walk in dependence upon your Spirit on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, today we want to resume our study of walking in the Spirit. Now, I want to list several results of, the, of walking in the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit produces when we have an attitude of faith depending upon Him. Recognize it's on the basis of grace, which means that we can't do it ourselves, but we expect the Holy Spirit to do it. All right, we saw yesterday something about agreement with God about sin. We saw that sin, as far as the Christian is concerned, is a matter of anything that is not from faith, on the one hand, and a matter of not doing something you know is right. And so Christian sin has to do with known factors. It has to do with known factors. A Christian sin is something you are knowingly doing against the will of God. Now, the important thing that we didn't talk about yesterday was what effect does this sin have upon God? As far as God is concerned, even the known sins do not have him make him change his attitude toward us because he does not count our sins against us anymore. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. He doesn't count our sins against us anymore. That's also brought out in Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Because you've been declared righteous in justification, he no longer counts your sins against you. So, when we knowingly sin as a Christian, it does not change God's relationship with us at all. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't become angry with us. Now, this is why I don't use, frankly the term in and out of fellowship because that has the connotation that two people are mad at each other if you're out of fellowship and that's not true now you be, you may become mad at God but God ain't mad at you so fellowship is not a good term unless it's very carefully defined and usually it's not defined so I just don't use it the two critical things the two critical experiences in the Christian life are walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit, one or the other. And if you're walking in the flesh, 
it's like two people who are in the same room and they stop talking to each other. In other words, communication ceases, but you can resume talking as soon as you change your mind and want to talk. That's the idea that is expressed in the Scripture, because though we can turn our back on God, He does not turn His back on us. And as I showed yesterday, agreement with God about our sin is primarily a changing of mental attitude from unbelief to belief. Now, the reason you do that is because you recognize that what you're doing is wrong. And you recognize that all that's necessary is to turn to depending upon the Spirit again because you agree with God about your sin and you say the same thing about it as He does. Now, all of this is in your attitude. You don't have to stop and have a verbalization in your mind about it or anything of this nature. But your attitude is this. The word confession, if you want to use that word, homologeo in 1 John 1, 9, means to say the same thing about something as God says about it. Now, what does God say about your sins? What does he say? Huh? He says they're forgiven. That's right. So if you're agreeing with God, what are you agreeing about? You're agreeing they're forgiven. You agree that you have... You agree that sin is sin. You don't rationalize around it. You don't have to because you know that your sin doesn't change your relationship with God. So you're able to be perfectly honest with yourself. And you're able to agree with God that, you're sin that, that you have sinned and that it's forgiven. You never, never should ask for forgiveness as a Christian. Never. I used to say, well, if it makes you feel better, do it. But I don't even say that now because it's expressing a wrong way of thinking. And as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If a man thinks he has to ask for forgiveness, it shows he doesn't believe what the Bible says. The Bible says you're forgiven all sin, past, present, future, at the moment of salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 through, 6, or 14 through 18. And it shows that God doesn't count them against you anymore. So you don't ask for forgiveness. You just thank God you are forgiven. Yes. What is that? I can't hear you. What about the Lord's Prayer? Boy, am I glad you asked about that. Because that seems to be a hang-up. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That was before the cross. In the Old Testament times, forgiveness was uh, eternal forgiveness was not clearly understood or defined, and there was a, a, uh, a salvation forgiveness, and there was a temporal forgiveness in the Old Testament. And this is why they brought animal sacrifices to the priest whenever they would sin, even though they were a believer. Whenever they knowingly sinned, they brought an animal sacrifice. But Hebrews chapter 10 shows that that's no longer the case, that since the cross, we have been forgiven and we're no longer to bring an animal sacrifice to a priest. We are to recognize we have been forgiven. Yes, sir. In 1 John chapter 1, we have 
a contrast between true believers and Gnostic unbelievers who were claiming that they were believers. There was a group of Gnostics in the uh, Christian community to which John was writing. And the Gnostics said that they were in the light and had fellowship with God. And John says that they were not in the light, that they continually walked in darkness. And by contrast, he says, the believer walks in the light. And the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing him from all sin. So what we have there is a contrast between believers and unbelievers. On the one hand, the one who walks in darkness, and it's the present tense verb there, it means he habitually walks in darkness. If you want amplification on this, read uh, Dr. Kenneth Wiest on 1 John, a commentary on 1 John by Kenneth Wiest. Kenneth Wiest is a great Greek scholar. And he brings out the significance of the continuing present tense that's used there, where the, the unbeliever continually walks in darkness, and by contrast, the way we can spot a believer is that he walks in the light. He has the understanding of God and he walks with reference to God. And the characteristic of him is the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing him from all sin. And then we have a contrast again in verses 8 and 9 of 1 John 1, where it says that the Gnostic says he has no sin, even though his life was filled with sin. He said he had no sin nature is the meaning of that verse. And by contrast, the believer confesses his sins. That is, he, it, it is a common fact of believer's life that he acknowledges, he agrees with God that he has sins, that he's not without sins, that he, has, he, he doesn't say that he's sinless. The difference between the Gnostic of that day and the believer was that the Gnostic said he had no sin nature at all and said he didn't sin anymore. But the believer, on the other hand, acknowledged that he had sins. The difference was that he knew he was forgiven. The Gnostic didn't. The Gnostic did away with the problem of sin by, say, by pretending he didn't sin anymore. The believer acknowledged that he sinned, but he knew he was forgiven. And so the contrast there is, on the one hand, the unbeliever said, we don't have sins. The believer freely admits that he's got sin. But the reason he does it is because of 1 John 2, 2. He knows that Jesus Christ is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He knows that forgiveness has already been established. Yes. Well, he says, if we confess our sins... Maybe we will and maybe we won't. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I believe that what that is applying to is in a general way the fact that if you're the kind of people who confess your sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And this is referring back to salvation. Because what we have here is not discussion of individual acts, but a contrast of categories of people. You have the category Gnostic who, say, who says he has no sin. You have the category Christian who says he has sins. And on the one hand, one is forgiven, the other is not forgiven. But that does not mean that if you don't confess your sin, you're not forgiven. Now, a simple 
illustration of that is this. Have you always confessed every sin you've committed? Are you forgiven? Yes, you are. So you see, forgiveness does not depend upon confession. However, confession is uh, the characteristic of one who is forgiven. And that's the, the purpose. Now, confession is important, as I pointed out yesterday, if you understand what confession means. Confession has to do only with known sin in the Christian's life. Now, it cannot mean that you're being forgiven at that point when you confess because God says He's no longer counting your sins against you and the Scripture can't contradict itself. However, confession there means to say the same thing about your sins as God does. And God says, number one, they sent Christ to the cross. Number two, they've been forgiven. Number three, the root of all sin is that you don't depend upon the Holy Spirit. And all of that should be in your mental attitude as a daily fact of life. And I believe that this is what is meant. Now, as a man changes his mind from unbelief to belief, immediately the Holy Spirit takes control again. And this is the most critical thing. Now, if you didn't believe you were sinning, why would you change your mind? See? So all of this is taken care of when you realize that you're walking in unbelief and you change from unbelief to faith again. And once you do that, then the Holy Spirit fills you again. Technically now, it is not proper to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Now you can do that if you want to, but I think that it becomes more of a hindrance to you than it does a help. Because you do not have to ask the Holy Spirit to you, the moment you start depending upon Him, He immediately takes control and empowers your life again. You don't have to ask. In fact, I, what I think we ought to do is get rid of all of these little formulas. Once we understand what the principles are, we should just believe, and that takes care of it. <clears throat> now, I, I agree that it's important to set forth formulas in order to get you to understand the principles in the first place. And that's why it's a good teaching technique. And I'm not saying we should do away with that, but I'm saying that once you learn the technique, tear down the, the uh, formulas because people get hung up on formulas. The important thing to do is to realize that the reason you sin and let's deal with root problems, not just with the offsprings of them. The reason you sin is because of not depending on the Holy Spirit. If you always depend upon the Holy Spirit, would you sin? No, you wouldn't. So when you agree with God about sin, it means to change from unbelief to belief, recognizing that you sin, but it's already been forgiven. Is that clear? There's a question over here. Yes. No, the girl right there with the aqua ribbon in her hair. I can't hear you. What about Hebrews 10:26? If we sin willfully after re uh, receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice. That's talking about unbelievers who were Jewish people, who were in the Jewish community, and he has just told them in context that Christ is the end of the animal, animal sacrifice system because he fulfilled it. Now, once they receive the knowledge of that truth, 
there was no more animal sacrifices that were valid. And so it's talking to a group who were hanging on in the Jewish community, but they were not true believers. They were still offering animal sacrifices. So it was a warning to turn to the final sacrifice and to let go of those animal sacrifices. All right, we're going to have to make some time. We'll take up some questions in a minute. All right, the results of walking in the Spirit. This, the result column, is what you should expect. Now, the faith, which is the means of walking in the Spirit, is an expecting faith. Now, that's very important. Expecting faith. You're expecting God to do what He promised. And the whole Christian life really centers around expecting God to do what He promised He'll do. And that's the key to the Christian life. Now, if you expect nothing, God won't disappoint you at all. If you expect to sin, you'll sin. If you expect not to sin, you won't. If you expect that the Holy Spirit will keep you from sin, and you keep counting upon that fact, you won't sin, even though you may be tempted relentlessly. Now, the second result of this is victory over the flesh. Galatians 5.16. We talked about that yesterday. Three, the third result is transformation of character. Transformation of character. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Where it says that the fruit of the Spirit, that is that which the Spirit produces in you, and you expect Him to produce this in you, is love, which is God's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, which means discipline. Faithfulness means uh, dependability, and so on. Second Corinthians 3.18 says that this character which the Spirit produces in us is the character of Christ. We're transformed in the same image. Four. Now that is a process, a progress. So don't go around looking to say, well, let's see now, am I experiencing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so forth? To start getting introspective destroys it. As some person said, I, I looked at Christ and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove of peace and it flew away. And that's true. You keep looking at Christ, not at what's going on inside. You expect Christ to do what he said he'll do and rest assured the Holy Spirit will produce it. Joy needs to have an occasion. Peace needs to have an occasion. Just expect that if you're walking in the Spirit when the situation occurs that you need peace, it'll be there. Don't go always checking to see whether you've got it or not. Okay, four. Production of the righteousness of the law and obedience. 
production of the righteousness of the law and obedience. We'll come back to this. I'll just give you the scripture. Romans 8, 4 and John 14, 21 through 23. John 14, uh, verses 21 through 23. Also, the same statement is made in John 15. I forgot the verse. We'll get it in a minute. Prayer. The Holy Spirit produces all effective prayer. Now, there's a lot of prayer that's not effective, and it wasn't produced by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 27, and Ephesians 6, 18. Now, here's where I want to make a point. Prayer should be the result of depending on the Holy Spirit. It is not the means of being filled with the Spirit. Now, there's some people that... In fact, I was in a meeting like this. I was in a church as a young Christian, and they said, uh, we're going to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know what in the world it was, but it sounded good. And so they said, we're going to have an all-night prayer meeting, and we're going to pray through. I didn't know what in the world we are going to pray through, but I was game. I said, if, it, if this is going to give me power, that's what I want. So we prayed just about all night. Finally, a few people got ecstatic, and I think it was just from pure fatigue. But that is not the way you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. That is works. It is not grace. As you depend upon the Holy Spirit, He will enlighten you to what God's will is about things, and you can claim them into existence. And that's effective prayer. Since the Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian, prayer has been completely uh, revolutionized. There is a kind of prayer possible today that wasn't possible to the average believer at all in the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit shows us how to pray when we don't even know how. And He even intercedes with us when we don't pray for the right thing. The Holy Spirit prays for us for the right thing, even though we don't even know what's going on according to Romans 8, 26, and 27. All right, prayer. Uh, a hunger for and an understanding of the Bible. Now, reading the Bible is not the means by which you become filled with the Spirit or the means by which you keep walking in the Spirit. However... As a man walks in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will produce a desire for the Word. And it is through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit primarily speaks to you. The Holy Spirit works through the Word if you're depending upon Him. And He, work, he writes upon your heart the image of Christ as you study the Word depending upon the Spirit. Now, where people get in a problem is they start with the motivation, a chapter a day will keep the devil away. Or they set up this regimented, disciplined Bible study 
for the purpose of and for the motive of achieving victory in life. Now, if you start out that way, it's no good. But there's nothing wrong with having a disciplined Bible study if it's motivated by the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, the one who is walking in dependence upon the Holy Spirit will be given a hunger for the Word. And if he never has a hunger for the Word, there's something wrong somewhere. The Holy Spirit works by the Word of God which he has stored in your heart, too. And he speaks to you about specific. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 16 is a passage which primarily categorizes mankind according to their ability to perceive the Word of God. Actually, it goes through chapter 3, verse 4. The Scripture shows there are four kinds of men as far as their ability to perceive and understand the Scriptures. Now, the first category named there is the natural man. That's the non-Christian who hasn't spiritual life. He can't accept the things of the Spirit of God from the Word. They're foolishness to him. The Word of God is foolishness to him. Then there is the spiritual man who's walking in the Spirit. It says he can understand the deep things of God because the Spirit shows them to him. And then there is the fleshly or the carnal man who can only understand the milk truths. He's a Christian, but he's walking in the flesh. And so he can only understand the milk truths. So that shows that the Bible will be taught to the one who is walking in dependence upon the Spirit to teach him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, Desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. And you start off like a baby with milk. And it's the Holy Spirit, though, that gives you that desire. So you expect the Holy Spirit to give it to you. 7. Faith. More faith actually comes from habitually walking in the Spirit. The reason is because what is faith anyway? Well, let's go back to our most basic thing. This is the most basic thing about living the Christian life. Faith comes from knowing God loves you. The more that you believe God loves you, the more that you see He loves you, the more you're going to trust Him. And so the more you are illuminated to Christ in the Scriptures by the Spirit, the more you're going to trust Christ. So the result will be more faith. Now the reason some people seem to not be able to believe God is because some people have a harder time believing that God loves them. They have a hard time believing anyone loves them, and that's the problem. So the Holy Spirit has to, has to progressively work in their life to show them that God really does love them and their failures doesn't stop him from loving them. Then they begin to trust God, and their life begins to be powerful. But it's a process which is brought about as a result of filling of the Spirit. Now, guys, number eight. This is something that everybody wants more of, and I'll talk about it, I think, Friday, how to, how to have guidance in your daily life. But it is a result of the filling of the Spirit. Romans 8:14 and Galatians 5:18. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now this 
shows that if you are a son of God, you are led by the Spirit of God. The only thing is we have to count upon this to make it experiential and profitable. Galatians 5.18 says, If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The Holy Spirit gives us guidance so that we don't have to be under rules and regulations. Now, going back to transformation of character and the production of law and obedience in our life. I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter three. This is actually one of the most fantastic uh, defenses that Paul ever wrote. Of course, it was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The background of this letter, and especially this chapter, is that when the Apostle Paul trained and discipled, he won and discipled these Corinthian Christians, after he left, there was a group of false teachers who came in behind him, and they, they impugned Paul's character. They said that he was not genuine, that he, he really was just trying to get people to live by license, and that all of the things he taught about grace were false, and they got these people under the law of Moses. They said, now look, this is what the Old Testament has always taught. This is what we Jews believe, that you cannot live for God apart from coming to him through the law of Moses and through various commandments. And so they turned these people who loved Paul against Paul. They said that Paul had actually deceived them by telling them they were not under the law. Now, Paul begins to really deal with that. He says, are we, we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? What's a letter of commendation? Maybe it'd be better to say recommendation. What's a letter like that? It's a reference to prove your character. To, re, uh, to establish your character. And so, you know, when you go to, go to apply for a job, you have to have a letter of commendation or a letter of recommendation which uh, someone says to vouch for your character. Now, Paul says, do I have to have with you whom I led to Christ and I got really going in the Christian life, those who were really living for Christ when I left you, do I have to have a letter of recommendation in order to be accepted with you again? And so he goes on to say, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. In other words, he says, I don't need a letter of recommendation to you so that you'll accept me. He said, You are my letter of recommendation because you wouldn't even be a believer if it wasn't for me. And you wouldn't even know how to live for God if it hadn't have been for me teaching you. So he says, you, you are a living letter. And not only that, not only are you a living letter of recommendation for me, 
But he says in verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, having been cared for, or literally, having been ministered. This is Mary's tense, which means it points back to the time when he brought him to Christ at a point of time. You are a letter of Christ having been ministered for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. Now, this is what he's saying, is that the believer, with the Holy Spirit in him, is actually a letter to the world. He's an open letter to the world. And that each believer should be a letter of Christ to the world, written not with ink or with laws, but written with the working of the Spirit in the heart. As an unbeliever looks at your life, he should be able to see that that is a letter from Christ to him because he sees that there is something different about you because of the working of the Spirit in your heart. And he says, that is my letter of recommendation to you. That's my proof of my apostleship. That's my, my proof that I'm from God. I couldn't have done that unless it was from God. And he reminds them of what had been true in the past of them. But then he starts a tremendous contrast between living under the law and living in the Spirit. And I ask you to contrast those. And now I would like to ask for volunteers to give me contrast between the old covenant, which was living under the principle of law, and the new covenant, which is living under the principle of grace. Just give one contrast at a time, okay? Very good. The old was on tablets of stone, but the new is on the tablets of the human heart. Now, what do you think they mean by that? Anyone? Okay. Right. In the Old Testament, we had to have a guide. But in the New Testament, we don't need a guide because there is the, the, the uh, inner working of the law, the principle of the law worked into our hearts. All right? All right? Another contrast in verse 6. The letter kills. Now, what's the letter referring to? The principle of law. Remember, not just the law of Moses, but the principle of law. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. Very good. All right? You and the, the girl back there. All right, in chapter 3, verse 9, one is the ministry of condemnation, the other is the ministry of righteousness. Very good. Another over here. Uh-huh. One is a ministry of death, verse 7. The other is a ministry of the Spirit, which in, in, is implied the life-giving Spirit. Very good. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Old Covenant was wit written without, with ink. The other one is written by the Spirit in a human life, in the, in the heart. Very good. Yes, over here.
Very good. I was wondering if someone would get that. I have that down here on mine, too. In verse 5, it's implied that there is the inadequate letter as, a, as opposed to the adequate spirit. The inadequate letter as opposed to the adequate spirit. That's actually 4 through 5. Okay, another. Right, the old one was transitory, but the new one will remain forever. It's a principle which will remain forever. It fades, but the other is permanent. It remains. Okay, over here. The old produces a veil which hardens the mind. The new gives us understanding. Very good. All right, there's one more. Yes. Good. A ministry of imputed righteousness or declared righteousness as opposed to a ministry of condemnation. Fine. All right. Well, the old covenant, good. The old covenant is presented as being with some glory, but the new covenant with super exceeding glory. And you know, there's really uh, one of my favorite messages is on, uh, I call a man for all seasons. A man for all seasons. And it's a message on Acts chapter 6 and 7 about Stephen. And... Uh, Stephen was a man before his time. He was a man for all seasons, if ever there was one, because in a book where the history of the founding of the church is, re is presented and everything in the book is very important, it's limited in words, everything that's brought in there is considered to be the most important facts of history which caused the founding of the church. And in the book of Acts, there are two chapters devoted to a man that was never heard of before and is only heard of once afterwards, and that's by a guy that he really hit named Paul. And Stephen is actually contrasted with Moses. And the reason is because in Exodus, when Moses gave, he introduced the law as a way of life. It says when he came down from the mountain, his face was shining with glory. He didn't even know that it was shining because he had been in presence of the Lord. And so when he introduced the law of Moses as a way of life, he had, his face was shining like an angel's. And yet when Peter, I mean, I should say when Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin and he was put on trial for saying that the law of Moses was done away, and that Christ was going to destroy the temple. He was before the greatest experts of his day. And here was a guy who hadn't been a believer more than a year. He couldn't have been a believer more than a year. Here he was standing before the greatest geniuses of his day who claimed to know all about the law of Moses, accused of blaspheming the law of Moses. What do you say? Well, he introduced something that none of the apostles were qualified to do because they didn't see the point on grace. But Stephen did. He was right when he got out and preached the law of Moses was no longer the way of life and that Christ had changed the customs of Moses. No one else was saying this. In Acts chapter 15, some 15 years later after this, they were still arguing over whether the Christians were to live by the law of Moses or not. 
But Stephen was way ahead of him. And he shows what the Holy Spirit can do when a man understands grace. And so we're told in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, that when he stood before that council, that those looking upon him saw his face as the face of an angel, just like Moses' face had shined, because he was actually God's first great demonstration of the law of the Spirit of life. He was his first great introduction to what a man could be if he walked in the Spirit by faith. Boy, the veil was not over his face. But the great point of this chapter is this, that when a person, whether he is a non-Christian or a Christian, comes to God by the principle of law, there is a veil between himself and understanding the truth of God. That veil is our inability to see that human merit will never bring us to God, that our human works can never produce a life that God will accept. That's the veil that is talked about here in the last part of the chapter. And it says in verse 15 about the Jewish believers, or Jewish unbelievers, but to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now that veil was failing to see the purpose of the law of Moses. The law of Moses was to show them that they had no human merit that God could accept, and instead of that they tried to keep it as a human merit system. And so he says that veil of misunderstanding is still over their heart. And frankly, it's over the heart of a lot of Christians. I would say that the majority of Christianity today has that veil over their heart as far as living the Christian life. But it says whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now this means that, in Rome, as it says in Romans 7, you're driven to despair by the law, and then you look from yourself and self-sufficiency to Christ in Christ's sufficiency. And so, in a sense, this is talking about the believer, too. He turns to the Lord in utter dependence. Now, when this occurs, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty. Now, when we turn to Christ, He begins to work in us through the Holy Spirit, His ambassador to us. And where we begin to recognize that ministry, we have liberty. Now, what is liberty? Well, I can't think of a better definition of liberty for the Christian than to be free to do what you want to do. And when you're depending upon the Spirit, you are free to do what you want to do because the Holy Spirit makes what you want to do what God wants to do. That's liberty, brother. And it says, but we all with unveiled face. Now, the unveiled face means that we see that we can't do anything, but we depend upon Christ. We see that the issue is not, as we read the Scripture, I've got to keep those rules and regulations, but we expect the Holy Spirit to do it. We see the true principle of grace as opposed to the principle of law. We see that we can expect God to do what I'm commanded to do. So it says, We with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We see in the Scripture what Christ is really like. We see that that's what we are to be. The mirror here is the New Testament particularly, of course, the whole Bible. That as we 
depending upon the Spirit, look into the Scripture, the Holy Spirit reflects the glory of the Lord to our mind. And it says that when this occurs, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The one who approaches God on the basis of faith, or I should say on the basis of grace through faith, is transformed by the Holy Spirit progressively into the same image that he sees Christ is in the Scripture. The Scripture is God's portrait of Christ. And he shows us the pattern that we're to be. And we just expect the Holy Spirit to produce that in, it, in us. But that image is produced by the Lord, the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work. I just want to make one quick pass at one thing that relates to this that must be explained, and that is, what is the righteousness of the law? As we're being transformed, the righteousness of the law is produced in us who walk according to the Spirit. And this is why we're not under the law. But what is the righteousness of the law? Well, very quickly, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Hold your finger there and then turn to Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Here's what the righteousness of the law is. All right, holding your finger in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, let's read Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. Oh, I'm sorry, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So what is the righteousness of the law? The righteousness of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. All right, now look at Romans 13, verses 8 through 10 in closing. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled what? The law. Why? For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not... And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this thing, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. So when it says that if we walk in the Spirit, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us, it's because primarily that the love which God has is produced in me. God shows me how much He loves me through the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit makes me respond in kind to God and to my fellow man. Now the one who has that kind of love doesn't need a law at all. And that's why God can tell us we're not under any principle of law whatsoever. We don't need rules and regulations. What we need is to walk in dependence upon the Spirit. 
and he writes on our hearts the law because the whole law and the prophets depends upon love, loving God and loving your fellow man. And that is the result of depending upon the Holy Spirit and expecting that to be true. So this is why. Where the Spirit of God is, there's liberty. Let us pray. Father, I pray that these things might not just be, might not just be theory, but a real experience. We might see that we were set free from the way of trying to strive to keep commandments in order that we might be free to trust the Holy Spirit to do what we could never do. In Jesus' name.